It's a great joy to be here. One of the uh, functions that David serves is when Jim is announcing that, uh, you know, the stuff here is part of, part, of <laughs> part of what I've invested. And you start clapping. I'm clapping. He says, don't clap for yourself. I said, okay. <laughs> so I thank the Lord that David can travel with me to give me that kind of insight <laughs> as to what I should be doing and shouldn't be doing. I bring you greetings from Sovereign Grace Church of Louisville, which is the only other place I'd rather be this morning. But since I can't be there, I am so happy to be here, and I am very happy to be among friends, as was mentioned, like Jared and Joseph and Bill and Marty and Andy and Mark and others I've known for decades, as well as some I've just come to know in recent years and uh, have been thoroughly blessed to know them try to express my gratefulness for your faithfulness over the years. Now, if you're a newer member uh, of Covenant Fellowship or just visiting, you may think, well, this doesn't apply to me. Well, no, it does. And if you're, if you're just visiting, you might land here. God might put you here. And I think that would be a wonderful thing. But your faithfulness over the decades testifies to God's sustaining grace at work in you and through you. And as I was walking around um, with Joseph Stagora and hearing of all the ways that this church is reaching out to the community, serving the communities we just heard about in the announcements, I feel it, it a little bit like the Queen of Sheba, who when she saw Solomon, her breath was taken away. And she said, you surpass the report that I heard. And it never fails when I, when I come here and hear of what God is doing. I am my breath is taken away. I just think, God, you're, you're so good. Your influence is felt all over the world. And that extends to Louisville, Kentucky, where just last week your senior pastor was preaching to our church. We weren't there because we were in Oregon last week. But we know, and I listened to the message, and it was fantastic. And I work regularly with Mark Prater through Sovereign Grace Music. So I just wanted to give you a little update on Sovereign Grace Music as asked to do this. Um, just so you know that I just don't sit in my office and play the piano all day. We actually get work done, and one of the things that we did uh, last year was release an album, two-volume album called Unchanging God uh, from the Psalms. And just a few weeks ago, we recorded a live album based on J.I. Packer's classic book, Knowing God, which marks its 50th anniversary of publication this year. How many people have read Knowing God? Okay. Yeah, if you haven't read it, you're in for a treat. Uh, it is just one of the best Christian books that have, has been written, and that's, I don't say that lightly. We produce these albums as part of our mission to produce Christ-exalting songs and training for the church from our local churches. That's the mission of Sovereign Grace Music. And it was an exciting project, this one, because... Not only it has some great songs on it, which I think you're going to be blessed by, but we got to record the entire project in our brand spanking new studio, which this church gave generously to provide for and is now completed. 
And we're going to be releasing one song a month from that album starting in January and July. We'll release the entire album at the Worship God Conference in Louisville. We have plans for a kid's scripture memory album. We're working on another album with Marty Machowski, one of the pastors here, in connection with one of his books. We'll be doing some singles. We're going to produce the Soundless Doctrine in that studio, Soundless Doctrine podcast in that studio, offer worship matters intensives for leaders, and that's the kind of stuff we're doing. And I just want to say, we see all this as a benefit of our partnership with Sovereign Grace Churches. And whether you know it or not, you are not only helping us produce Christ-exalting songs and training for the church, but you're modeling it here every Sunday. It's why we do what we do, and we're very grateful to be doing it together. So thank you. That time doesn't count for my message time. I just want you to know. If you would open your Bibles to Psalm 50, that is where we are going to be exploring, studying, learning this morning. And I, I want to add what a privilege it is to, to speak to this church. I remember when it's planted. And I've uh, been back a number of times through the years, and it's always a pure joy to be here. For thousands of years, the Psalms have served God's people. I know you've had some great messages on the Psalms preached here. They give us words to say to God and about God, no matter what situation we find ourselves in. It's just, it's just amazing how much ground the Psalms cover, right? When we're feeling overwhelmed, the Psalms say, we can pray this, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. Psalm 40. When we see evil prosper around us, we can cry out with the psalmist, arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. It's a good prayer to pray, Psalm 9, 19. When we need to confess our sin, thank God for Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Not according to my deservings, but according to your steadfast love. When we've made a complete mess of our lives, when you look around on Sunday morning and think, I'm not like these people, I can't measure up to this, I could never be a part of this, Psalm 25, 4 says, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. The Psalms teach us how to pray. They teach us how to relate to God. But some Psalms don't do that. They don't begin with our situation, our perspective, our thoughts about God. They reveal God's thoughts about us. They speak to us more directly, and Psalm 50 is one of those psalms. Specifically, it tells us what kind of worship pleases God, and if you're a note taker, and I think you should be, you, the title of this message is What God Looks For in Our Worship. And don't feel any condemnation if you don't take notes. I'm just saying it's been a helpful practice for me over decades, and I would encourage it. <clears throat> what God looks for in our worship. Let me say also, I keep putting in these little caveats. Jared did not ask me to preach this message because there's something he wanted to tell you through me. All right. I, I, we stood here this morning and joined with you as we were singing our praises to the Lord, and we were just nothing but encouraged by what God is doing through you. But we all need reminders and consider this a reminder. Psalm 50 asks not, 
what kind of worship do we like? But what kind of worship does God like? Psalm 50 reminds us that we can become casual in our relationship with God and forget the grace that lies behind our relationship with Him. <clears throat> I remember reading this psalm a number of years ago and thinking, one day I'd love to preach a message on this psalm. And here we are. I'm preaching a message on this psalm. The point to remember is this. God cares about how we worship Him. He cares. And as we work our way through this psalm, this is the big picture we're going to see, the big idea we're going to take home, hopefully. The worship that pleases God is marked by a heart of thankfulness and a life devoted to God. That's the kind of worship that pleases God. It's marked by thankfulness and a life devoted to God. God alone deserves our worship. Nothing else deserves worship like God does. He was amen to that amen. He was shining forth in beauty before the universe even existed. He was alone and completely glorious and completely satisfied. He wasn't crying out for relationship. He had relationship. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And worship is God's invitation for us, to us, to enjoy the relationships he's enjoyed from eternity. He's inviting us in. So he gets to define worship. Let's listen to what he has to say and ask the Spirit to use these words to both convict and transform us. This is the Word of God, which is treasured, valued, and esteemed here because it is inerrant, infallible, and sufficient. Psalm 50, a psalm of Asaph. Now, it's a long psalm, so get settled in. But it's God's words, so it's good to be settled in. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before Him is a devouring fire. Around Him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that He may judge His people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare His righteousness for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the fields is mine. Saw some deer yesterday on your property. That's very nice that you put those deer there. 
You know who they belong to? God. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls? Or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. And you will glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Lord, would you open our eyes and ears and hearts to receive, to hear what you would give us so that we might live for your glory and the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. The psalm opens up, it's, it's a scene. It's, a, it's something's happening. There's a, it's, a, it's a location, it's a cosmic courtroom. It's a theophany where God's appearing to his people. And he wants to speak to them, wants to speak to us about how they worship him and remind them of the grace they've forgotten that underlies all their offerings. We're going to look at the psalm in three sections. And then the first one, verses 1 through 6, is the judge of worship. Now when we use the word judge, you judged me. We often use it in the negative sense, like coming to a conclusion without sufficient evidence. That's not how the word judge is being used here. It's, it's being used in the sense of evaluating something testing it, revealing what it really is. And this section says three things about the judge of worship. First, it talks about the supremacy of the judge. As the psalm starts out, we read, the mighty one, God, the Lord. It's not just being redundant. It's three Hebrew words, El, Elohim, Yahweh, which communicate three different things. God in his might, his power, God in his awesomeness, and God in his covenant relationship, his love for us. He's not like anybody else speaking. This is God, the Lord, the mighty one speaking. He is powerful. He is the covenant God, and he is our judge. 
And his judgment is perfect. And his verse 6 tells us, the heavens declare it. So that's who he is. Do we realize when we gather here on Sunday mornings that that's who we're coming to? I mean, we walk in, the place is abuzz with people talking and laughing and interacting and serving all over the place. But really, we are here to encounter this God, to address this God who is himself among us. And he has thoughts on what we're doing. You know, every Sunday afternoon, we'll have a, a family meal with whoever part of the, whatever part of the family is in town. Two of our kids are right now. And we'll talk about the Sunday service. We'll evaluate the Sunday service. Maybe you do this at lunch. You know, what songs you like, how long the sermon went, who we got to talk to, what we got out of the meeting. We share our perspectives on the meeting. Well, God has perspective on our meetings. Only his perspective is the only perspective that matters. And it's the one we really want to pay attention to. And he judges us not because he wants to chastise us or punish us, but because he wants to understand the gift that worship is. It is a gift. So he's the supreme judge. Then we see the seriousness of the setting. The way the psalmist describes the setting reminds us of God meeting with his people in Mount Sinai. There's a fire and a storm. There's a tempest. It's not unlike the fire and the thunder and the lightning described in Exodus 19 when God met with his people. In verse 7, I am God, your God, sounds very much like I am the Lord, your God, the words he spoke to Israel in Exodus 20 right before he gave them the Ten Commandments. So the picture we get is just like God meeting with his people at Sinai is this sobering, solemn event, this is too. God wants us to pay attention. But the supremacy of the judge and the seriousness of the setting shouldn't cause us to fear because there's a third aspect of the judge, and that is the realness of the relationship. Verse 4, God speaks to his people. In verse 5, my faithful ones. While God is awesome and transcendent, he's not distant. He is our God, and we're his chosen ones. And what enabled God's people in the Old Testament to maintain that relationship with him was the sacrifices that he graciously provided for them. They were the way, the means by which God, that God's people could regularly come to him without him consuming them. They were a gift. But centuries later, and we read it this morning when we shared communion, the writer of Hebrews would point out that those sacrifices were unable to take away sins. And they were unable to actually change hearts. They were just pointing to that once and for all sacrifice of the perfect lamb, God's son, Jesus Christ. So now, as God's people, which we are, we are those who by his electing grace have been brought into a relationship with him through sacrifice, but it's not the sacrifice of goats and bulls and lambs. It's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who once and for all 
paid for our sins on the cross, defeated Satan and his hosts, and reconciled us to God. So we can fit into this psalm. There's a lot of similarities. And so out of his love for us, God speaks to us. He summons us. He calls us. He gathers us to judge our worship. So what does he say? What does he say about our worship? Okay, that's where we're going to now. Point two, the heart of worship. Verses 7 through 15. So God gets serious about what we're doing. And in these verses, he addresses the dangers of formalism. Formalism. Formalistic worship is superficial worship. It finds its confidence in in outward forms and rituals and practices. We, we, We do these things every week and we're good to go. Now, rituals and practices aren't bad in themselves. They can help us focus on the right things. Doing the right things over and over is a good thing. But ritualism is a mindset that says we are better off with God because we're doing these things. We've gained his favor because we're doing these things. And God's addressing the fact that his people seem more concerned about what they're doing for him than what he's done for them. His concern is their heart. And one of my favorite commentaries on the Psalms by Derek Kidner He describes this type of person as mechanically pious. They go through the motions thinking that that's what God wants us to do. We're here. We're singing. We're raising our hands. We're doing what they tell us to do. I'm good to go. Israel is offering sacrifices, but they misunderstood the purpose of those sacrifices. They failed to see that they were a gift and not an achievement. And in his commentary on this psalm, Dane Ortland writes this, the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament was God's way of driving home to his people the horror of sin and the need for it to be punished, if not by the guilty one, then by an animal bearing that guilt. Yet the story of the Old Testament is a story of Israel's misusing the sacrificial system, using it to attempt to buy God off in a coldly transactional way, rather than allowing it to move them to deeper contrition and trust in him. And brothers and sisters, we can do the same thing. We can think that by being here, we're buying God off. We're doing something that he has to respond to. Israel's problem, and sometimes ours, is they thought that God might actually need their worship. They thought that he might actually benefit from it and he would do them a favor in return. And we can fall into that same trap. Leaders can think that God is somehow dependent on our planning, on our teaching, on our leadership, on our communication skills, on our eloquent prayers, on our musical abilities. Church members can think that it's our singing, our listening, our taking notes, our participating in the Lord's Supper, 
and not realize that all those things are meant to move us to a deeper trust in and gratefulness for the gift of Jesus Christ. They're meant to drive us deeper. Theologian Robert Davidson makes this insightful comment. He says, God would still be God if we offered him nothing. But we would not be truly human if we did not make an offering. Sacrifice, I love this, sacrifice should have been food for thought, not food for God. So in verses 9 through 13, God reminds us that he doesn't need our worship. We do. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. That's often used as a reference to how God will provide for us. Hey, I have everything. But in this context, it's saying that I don't need what you bring me. I've, I've got everything I need. We can't offer God anything that he didn't first give to us. It's like what Paul said when he was speaking in Athens in Acts 17. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He doesn't live in this building. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's the source. He gives us our worship as well. Pastor James Boyce reminds us, as soon as we begin to think that we are doing God a favor by our worship, we dishonor God and slide into a false religion of works righteousness. Now, I, I grew up Catholic, and I was going to become a priest, and I was set on becoming a priest until the junior seminary I went to shut down. And I thought, well, that must be the Lord saying, I'm not supposed to be a priest. And three years later, God graciously opened my eyes to see that the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ was sufficient to pay for my sins. I trusted in that. I believed he rose from the dead, and my life was changed 51 years ago. But I've spent a lot of my life trying to get rid of this, a religion of works righteousness. Do you ever think you're doing God a favor by showing up on Sunday morning? I got out of bed early. I could be doing other things, but I'm here. Somebody should thank me. And this, this, this church is so encouraging, somebody will thank you. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but, but we can think, you know, God owes us something because we carved out some time to be here. Do you ever come to a meeting more conscious of what you're going to be giving rather than what God has already given you? and what he is going to give you? Do you ever head home sometimes more aware of what you did in singing, listening, serving, rather than by God's grace, what you received? I have. Apart from God's grace, we will always place the accent on what we do, whether we think we've done really well or really badly. It will always be about us what we bring, what we didn't bring, what we did, what we didn't do, how we acted. But our relationship with God begins with him, his grace, his initiative, his actions, his revelation, his spirit. As Paul says, Romans eleven thirty six, from him, through him, 
and to him are all things. All things. Our relationship with God has always been marked by his remarkably gracious initiative. He created us. He didn't have to. He wanted to share his joy and glory. Places us in the garden. We reject his rule. Who takes the first step? God does. Where are you? Adam and Eve weren't there saying, oh my gosh, we got to find a way to get, back to get back to God. No, God came after them. God chose Noah and established a covenant with them. God called Abram out of Ur to the promised land. God appeared to Moses after 40 years of just kind of waiting around. He appears in a burning bush to tell him that, hey, you're going to be the instrument I use to deliver my people from Egypt. God calls his people, after delivering him through the Red Sea from the Egyptian army, calls them together at Mount Sinai to reveal his laws. He says, you're going to be my chosen possession, my treasured possession. He calls out and raises up Samuel the prophet and David the king. And then God raises up prophet after prophet to persistently speak to his people. And then God sends his son to redeem us. And then he sends his spirit to live inside us. Who asked for this? No one. No one. God always takes the initiative in our relationship with him. Isn't that good news? Isn't that releasing? We've done nothing and can do nothing to summon God to merit his attention or to deserve his affection. He's not a genie in a bottle. Just shh, there. So what kind of heart is that meant to produce in us? Well, this is the heart of worship, a heart of thanksgiving and a heart of dependence. Verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. God is... You want to know what God's looking for? God is looking for our glad realization that he has done everything needed for us to have a relationship with him. And what a comfort to hear him say that when we call upon him, when we're in trouble, when we're in need, and so many times we think those are the times we can't go to God, he's saying, no, that's the time you call out to me and I will deliver you and that will glorify me. You're proving that you can be the perfect Christian will not glorify me because there was only one perfect Christian, and that's Jesus. And we're not him. But he lives in us by his spirit, and he's always working in us, but it's all a gift. It's like what Jesus said to the woman in John 4, the Samaritan woman, when he says in verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus isn't saying that we have to figure out the right combination of songs or words or actions to be acceptable to him. He is saying that you need the spirit to worship me, and you need the truth, who is Jesus, 
to come to me, and I've given you both. So when we come to God in worship, he's not evaluating how we perform. He is looking for a genuine heart of gratefulness and dependence because everything we have comes from him. Just changes your whole perspective, doesn't it? God's the one who initiates our worship and our right response is gratefulness. But there's another response God addresses next, and this is verse 16, kind of a whiplash moment. But to the wicked, God says. Now, God's not turning to another group of people. Yeah, yeah, finally, those wicked. Yeah, yeah, God, talk to them. He's looking at the same group of people. And he's saying, among you, there are some wicked. And I want to address you. And what he's going to address is our third point, the life of worship. We looked at the heart of worship, verses 16 to the end, the life of worship. In the first section, God addresses empty worship, formalistic worship, which concerns our relationship with him. In this section, God's addressing hypocrisy, which concerns our relationship with others. He says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant upon your lips? Now, this concern's rooted in the first. If we're going through the motions in our worship, thinking that you know, God somehow needs this or we're impressing God, we're eventually going to forget what it means to exalt God at all. This points to what Scottish theologian John Webster says is one of the basic rules for understanding the Christian gospel. Grace and godliness must never be separated. They can be distinguished, and they should be distinguished, but they can never be separated. And the order can never be reversed. Can't be godliness, then grace. It's grace, then godliness. Gift and call. Promise and command. Mercy and obedience. Always and everywhere, God keeps them together. Savior and Lord. Can't have one without the other. And in the next four verses, God gets specific about what makes their worship hypocritical. And we'd be so thankful that he does. God doesn't deal in generalities. You guys are just wicked. You're just doing bad stuff. I don't like it. That would just be so unhelpful. Just feel condemned. You don't know why. We do that with each other sometimes. God does not do that. He's very specific. You hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. The heart of hypocrisy is claiming to worship God but not exalting him by submitting to and treasuring his word. This might seem a little strange in a psalm about gathered worship. He doesn't say anything about lifting hands, songs, instruments, anything like that. But there's a lot here about how we live our lives. Because as I mentioned earlier, the worship that pleases God is marked by a heart of thankfulness and a life devoted to God. This is the point that the prophet Jeremiah makes in Jeremiah 7 when he says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, 
and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? So the Lord gets specific, and he highlights the seventh, eighth, and ninth commandments and how his people, certain ones among his people, are breaking them. Verse 18, if you see a thief, you are pleased with him. That's against the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Stealing includes not only things like robbing a bank or hijacking someone's car, but taking whatever's not ours. It's, it's wasting time at work, taking your company's time to do your own stuff. It's taking credit for what someone else did. Or not saying anything when the person at the checkout doesn't charge you for an item in your cart and you're loading things in your car and you go, oh, that, that praise the Lord. Thank you, Father, for <laughs> letting me get this extra thing. That's stealing. And God addresses not only what we do, but what we're approving of in others, what we're attracted to, what we let happen, like envying someone who found a way to beat the system, to stick it to the man. You think, oh, I wish I could have done that. That's what it is when he says that you are, when you see a thief, you are pleased with them. It's not only what you do, it's what you approve in of those around you. It's the same thing for the next thing he says, drawn from the seventh commandment. He says, you not only commit adultery, but you keep company with adulterers. So how does that apply? Well, you pursue sexual sin and you keep telling yourself, I won't do it again. And then you do it again. And again. You disregard God's command to keep the marriage bed pure and undefiled and engage in physical intimacy with someone you're not married to. You gather with God's people on Sunday mornings to proclaim his words, sing these songs, but during the week you keep company with those who promote and celebrate sexual sin on your iPhone or your iPad or your computer. You keep company with adulterers. You don't see the, the disconnect, how that's the exact opposite of what you're doing here on Sunday morning. And then he goes on to address ways we break the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. And I have to say, since I've been giving this message in various places, I often think of these verses. You don't put any guardrails on your speech. Say exactly what you think, what you feel, and you broadcast it to the world. You, you bless the world by letting them know what you're thinking. You twist and distort and exaggerate or blatantly lie about what others say to make your point. If you want to know what that's like, just read some Facebook comments. You slander and gossip about others Destroying the reputation of people that God calls you to protect. You use your words like swords that pierce the hearts of others. Even your friends 
and your relatives, your own mother's tongue. And then Asaph puts his finger on what lies behind all these sins, and he could have mentioned others. Verse 21, he says, These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. As they pursued what was doing, what was right in their own eyes, God became different. Their view of God changed. They, they became comfortable with thinking that a sinful life, an unrepentant sinful life, could coexist with public worship. They were good with that. But when we're good with that, we've lost touch of who God really is. And because they didn't experience any immediate consequences, they thought God approved of what they were doing. They thought it was okay. Theologian Alan Ross says it simply like this. We confuse God's patience with God's permission. We confuse God's silence with God's satisfaction. I can't help but wonder if in a group this size, this applies very particularly to some of us here. We sing songs about being devoted to God on Sunday, but we're devoted to our own pleasures during the week. That's what we pursue. We listen to God's word being preached, but when we make choices or decisions that, that matter, we don't think of God's word as a voice to follow. We search out social media or friends or, or our own thoughts. We enjoy the benefits of being among God's people here, but we don't want to be identified with them at school or in our family or a neighborhood or a job. And it seems like it's working. It seems like it's been working. You've been doing this a long time. Or maybe not a long time. But everyone seems fooled. If that's you, God is having mercy on you right now by letting you know he's not fooled and he's not unaware. And this psalm and this message and this meeting and this church are God's mercy to you and his kind invitation to you to repent to turn from your pursuit of sin and find true joy in the gift he has given of salvation in Jesus Christ. Because there is no gift like it, which frees us then to offer him the kind of worship that he's looking for. Because the worship that pleases God is marked by a heart of thankfulness and a life devoted to God, a life of obedience, a life of humility, a life marked by the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, thanksgiving. So it'd be good for us to ask, how do, we, how do we get to a point like this? How do we get to the place where our worship is hypocritical? Well, verse 21 tells us, you thought 
I was one like yourself. And in the Hebrew, that reads, you, you thought I am was like you. I am is a reference to the name God gave to Moses when Moses asked, who shall I say sent me? He says, I am. I am who I am. We exalt ourselves to God's position and we think the I am is just like us. But he's not. He's God. He's not like us. John Collins points out this irony when he says God's name is especially connected with his promises of faithfulness and kindness to his people. The wicked are abusing this. We're taking advantage of this. So then these strong words come in verse 22. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. God warns us against forgetting him. Forgetting who he is, the mighty one, God the Lord, forgetting that he is surrounded by a devouring fire and a stormy tempest, forgetting who he is, what he's like, who he's revealed himself to be, forgetting that it's only because of his grace that he is our God, worthy of all our affection, all our gratitude, all our devotion, all our obedience, And if we don't listen to what God is saying, there will be none to deliver. None to deliver. And I suspect that at this point, each of us us has become more aware of how our worship can go astray. Maybe we've seen creeping signs of formalism, where you've been coming here a while and it's just starting to feel kind of ordinary and, you know, just... You just show up and you know, people should be grateful that you show up. Or maybe it's creeping signs of hypocrisy that you're just more and more comfortable with not living for God's glory in the week. Who of us has ever offered to God worship that's truly worthy of him? How many times have we gone through the motions of worship impressed with our spirituality? How many times have we failed to exalt God in the way we live? How many times have words come from our lips that have been in complete disobedience to God's word? Why wouldn't God tear us apart? Because God tore Jesus apart instead of us. That's why. He tore Jesus apart. The sins continue but he tore Jesus apart. He was pleased to crush his perfect and beautiful son on the cross, making him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we could be called the righteousness of God.
1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. That's why we can gather as God's beloved children and not be judged as his enemies. So he ends sobered and humbled, reminding us again of what pleases God in our worship. The one who offers sacrifice, thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who orders his way, way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. What glorifies God? Thanksgiving, gratefulness, gratitude, amazement, wonder, awe. Calling on him, being delivered by him. God showing us his salvation. We're in need, he gets the glory. And that will always be the case through eternity. How gracious of God to evaluate our worship. How kind of God to remind us of our ever-present desire to impress him. He can't be impressed. You know what impresses him? A humble and contrite heart. You know what impresses us most? The sacrifice of his son. How good it is of God to point out all the ways that we exalt ourselves rather than him. And how merciful of God to remind us that every week when we gather, we gather not to glory in ourselves. This is a wonderful church. This is an amazing church. But all we can do is point to an amazing Savior. That's all we can do. That's the best we can do as we remember, rehearse, and revel in the salvation that is ours through the finished work of Christ. That should be humbling, but it also should be freeing and joy-producing because we gather as his people every week to confess our need for mercy, which he has freely given us in Christ. We gather every week as his needy people to ask for grace, to help in every need, which he delights to give, all because of Christ. We gather as his people every week, his grateful people, to thank him for what he's done. And we will spend all eternity doing just that. May God give us grace to apply these words to our hearts for our eternal good, our eternal joy, and his eternal glory. Father, we thank you that you judge our worship. We thank you that you are so kind to reveal to us where we are disconnecting, where we are living in defiance, even as Christians, where we think that your silence means you're satisfied, your patience means you're permitting it. Thank you for your convicting spirit, and thank you for the spirit opening our eyes to see the gift of salvation we have in Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life we could never live, who was torn apart on the cross so that we wouldn't be for our sins, for our judgment, and then rose from the dead to proclaim for all who would believe in him, there is salvation in Jesus Christ. And we will spend eternity giving glory to you for that gift. May our songs and our gatherings and our lives proclaim that evermore, increasingly, 
for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.